All right, so I have uh, one wife and five sons, and that's enough of both. Um, no man needs more of, well, you know, some people have big families, bigger families than me, but it seems like that's plenty big enough. Um, and since February, I have been the CEO of Christian Camping New Zealand, which is an interesting prospect, <laughs> especially in the middle of COVID. And uh, really what that means is um, I've been able to apply a lot of this thinking around mission drift practically into camping and how we support camping through New Zealand. And so you, you wouldn't have seen it yet, well, you may have possibly. But um, if you go onto the CCNZ website currently, it says something like uh, Christian Camping New Zealand growing leaders for tomorrow or something along those lines. But actually, Christian Camping New Zealand doesn't exist for that purpose. We don't do any leadership, well, we do a little bit. We, we, our primary focus is not leadership development. It's not youth ministry. Our primary focus is supporting camps so that the camps can do that stuff really, really well. And so I was able to right from the get-go stop and say, why do we exist? What are we actually here for? Knowing why is more important than knowing what you do, right? Um, your what can change, your why shouldn't. <laughs> this should be the core thing that underpins what, whatever you do. Um, even as an individual, you know, why do you do this? Why are you at school? Why are you studying whatever you're studying at university? Why, why are you looking for a girlfriend? Why are you looking for a boyfriend? Why is a really important question. And the what is secondary. Uh, and so I've been able to change the, um, the mission statement for CCNZ and make it super, super simple. And it, it's now, and it hasn't gone up on the website yet, but it's to champion and equip members to achieve their purpose. That's it. Simple, eh? And what that looks like can change depending on the context and the need and the camps and like how, how we support Totra Springs is very, very different to how we might support um, Highland Home down in the Manawatu or something like that. Like it's just a totally different proposition. But the why doesn't. It's about supporting and equipping our camps so that they can achieve their purpose and their, their missions. Cool. So that's my little intro bit. Um, I'm going to tell you today about uh, some research that I did over the last four years. And I looked at how faith shapes the practice of faith-based organisations. So if, they, if these organisations exist and they say, we do this because we believe such and such, or because we came out of a church and, and the church wanted to meet a certain need, does that actually make a difference to what they do? Places like the Salvation Army or Parenting Place, who, do, who run parenting courses, does it, does it make a difference? And I found some really interesting things. I was looking for how an organization's why shaped their what. This is why we exist, now what do you do? And so that would be two things. They would say that they believe all of this stuff on one hand, but then their, their activity, what they did, would demonstrate a set of values as well. And I was looking, did those two things line up? Or were they, were they missing? Uh, James talks about faith without works is dead. And it's not that you have, to, you have to do stuff in order to have faith. It's that if you actually have faith, this stuff just comes out of what you believe. It's like the evidence, right? And what I found with organizations that said that they existed because they had some faith motivation, they believed in God and wanted to you know, see some social good fixed or something like that, was that often their what, their practice, what they did on a daily basis, ended up shaping their why. So they changed 
why they did what they did over time. And that's the story of Mission Drift. I owe you a shirt. Here, have a shirt. Sorry, I only, like, I, I literally paid for them myself and got them made for our interns. So, yeah. <laughs> I only got the number that I needed. If I had spare, I would have said yes. <laughs> um, so, I'm just going to define mission drift first so that we're all kind of on the same page. And we're going to chat for not too long, hopefully, and then we can... You can ask questions, and if you don't have any questions, then I can ask you some questions, because it'll be interesting to hear from you guys as well. Um, so what, first of all, why is youth ministry important? Um, you might, I don't know if you know these statistics or not, but we'll, I'll quickly share them with you. So Christian camping is largely, not exclusively, but largely about youth ministry, and you, know, you guys here are, to some extent, the product of that and the reason that we exist in, in different ways. Um, and so a couple of stats there quickly. The National Church Life Survey from Australia, uh, they surveyed a whole bunch of Christians in different church congregations, and 77.5% of Christians in church gave their lives to Jesus before they were 20 years old, 20 years old and 60, nearly 65% of them before they were 12. And just a few years ago, Scripps Union did a similar survey in New Zealand, and they found very similar results, 80% under the age of 19, and 63.5% under the age of 12. So if people are going to have a lifelong commitment following Jesus, the pre-20, the first 20 years of life, are extremely important in embedding that. Not, it's not, not a done deal. There is a percentage outside that as well, but it's, it's pretty key. That's one side of the coin. The other side of the coin is this. David Goodwin did um, a study uh, as part of his doctoral research, and he looked at, uh, in Australia, and he looked at the demographics of people who were in church now, and his findings were this. 50% of kids who are currently in church will no longer attend a local church within 15 years. So on one hand, the, pre the first 20 years of life are extremely important. On the other hand, 50% of them aren't going to stick around forever. They're going to... So there's a, the youth ministry is an incredibly important um, ministry because of, one that's the time when people make commitments. And two, there's such a massive attrition rate. If we can help to plug that gap, then we can have a really serious and significant impact on the extension of the kingdom of God. And he came up with some ways that we can do that. And it's really all about transitions into local churches. Um, children who attend all or part of the adult service on a regular basis are twice as likely to make a successful transition into adult church. To stick around. Um, <laughs> adult church members who ignore children or have mainly negative contact with them, are likely to contribute to their desire to leave. Or who would have thought? If you get treated stink, you're not going to want to hang around, right? It's pretty obvious. Um, there are positive effects when children and young people are able to participate in the adult service in a genuine way. What does that mean? Participation, involvement, feeling valued. You have something to contribute. You're not just a token bench warmer. It, like, who would have thought? You want to feel valued. That's common sense again. Um, intergenerational social settings outside of a Sunday morning are really, are really key. And if kids enjoy their time in children's ministry, they're more likely to continue into adult membership. What does that mean for us in a Christian camping context, and how does that relate to Mission Drift? Well, it means that our focus in terms of kids' ministry should be largely influenced by encouraging and promoting a connection to local church. 
local church partnership with camping is really, really, really important and we can't neglect it. One person in camping said to me, the relationship between the church and Christian camps in New Zealand is broken beyond repair and we need to move on. It was a camp manager and I completely disagree. We can't move on because that's why we exist. And if, we, if that is isolated, then we're not actually fulfilling our mission. We're just running camps. If we're just running camps, then let's go and get jobs that pay better. Because <laughs> we're called to make disciples, not just to make converts. That's really important. All right, so into the mission drift stuff then. That's our why. That's the underpinning bit. So um, what is mission drift? Mission drift is different from mission evolution. And what I mean by that language is this. Um, an organization, if you exist long enough, the context that you exist within is going to change, right? People are going to change. What's cool and not is going to change. What the needs of the people that you're trying to meet are going to change, or your market share is going to change. All these things are going to change. And it's appropriate and right for what you do to change to continue to meet those needs. You may even want to change the needs that you're meeting a little bit. The difference between that and mission drift is that those changes are led. They're intentional. They're, it's a decision that's been made by the people who are responsible for the strategic direction of this ministry or this whatever business or whatever. And they're responding to a need and they're leading it. Mission drift is not that. Mission drift is, is subversive. It's quiet. It's um, not noticed. It's not intentional. It's accidental. It's like... Um, if you're in a boat and you're traveling in a certain direction and there's wind blowing, but you're not looking at the landmarks or you're not consulting your navigational equipment and you're responsible for holding this thing on course, but you're slowly just being moved off course and you don't notice it. And over time, you get way away from where you first started. That's mission drift. And it happens within organizations and it happens all the time. It's the default. So if you don't proactively protect against it, it's going to happen. It's like growing weeds in the garden. Anybody can, can grow weeds. It's the default, unless you're proactively pulling them out again. So here's an example of a couple of instances of mission drift. Um, in 2010, there was a, a very large Christian organization. The, the president of this large organization said, an organization changes slowly, and then all of a sudden you realize that the changes have happened so much that you need to step back and see if you are putting out the name that really reflects who you are. And, and that, that phrase, who you are, you might consider to be more like um, why we exist. So we've changed a little bit, little bit, little bit, little bit, little bit, haven't noticed it, and then you have to go, hang on a minute, we've changed. And you stop, you take a step back so you can actually see, and you go, oh wow, we'd, we used to be over there and now we're over here. Do we still exist for the same reason? That organization was Child Fund International. It used to be Christian Children's Fund and the president had just led the organization through a rebranding exercise and removed the name Christian from the name. Why? They changed, 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 changed. They were no longer a faith-based organization. She stepped back and had a look and went, oh, right, why are we called Christian Children's Fund? And changed the name. Does that make sense? Yeah? So that's, that's mission drift. Another example is this. There's a, a really major university, and I'll tell you what university it was in a minute. Or if you can guess without me telling you, then there'll be bonus prizes. Um, except they don't have any prizes, you'll just get like a thumbs up. Um, their, their founding precept, like the motto that this, that this massive university was founded on, said, the main end of your life and studies is to know God and Jesus Christ. Any ideas yet? No? 
their motto is Veritas Christo et Ecclesiae, truth for Christ and the church. You've definitely heard of it. It's Harvard University. Harvard is, hey, who got it? Boom, good work. Harvard University is a, a bastion of liberal values today. This is, does not reflect who they are. They've kept the motto, they've actually got rid of that precept because clearly they don't agree with it. But um, their motto and their practices don't align, they're incoherent. And so they're an incredibly commercially successful and, and prestigious university, right? So we're not saying because you've drifted in your mission that now your organisation sucks. We're just saying you're not doing what you say you do or why you say you do it. You do something different. So that's what Mission Drift is. Um, I'm not going to go through that, but I think I'll just skip that. Yeah, go. Um, so when you say Mission Drift, it's not necessarily um, a negative, but it's just a drift away from the original mission. It could be in a positive way. Well, it depends what you call positive and negative. Like you might become more financially successful, but why do you exist? If you exist to make profit, then sure, that's positive. Um, you were, you had a, you know, a, a negative mission, not a negative mission, you know, um, and then you became more useful, whatever you want to call it. Um, so you started off with a secular organization, and then it was a turnaround, and it became a Christian organization. That would be a positive example of mission drift. I, I think it. I think mission drift is is inherently negative, not necessarily because of the outcomes, but because it's it's unintentional. Like, you're not really leading anything. It's just, you're, you're being blown by the wind and it's just happened. A and you might have been, happened to be blown into a, in a positive direction and, yay, this thing happened, cool. But, you know, you didn't mean to. Okay, so the problem is the drifting. It's the drifting, yeah. A and for a faith-based organisation, if we say we exist because of a mission, this is a ministry, um, then any departure from that, from a faith perspective, is negative. So I found four things that led to mission drift, and um, there were, and they're not rocket science. You'll go, oh yeah, of course, for some of them. Uh, the, the cool thing about finding four things that lead to mission drift is that you can, by being aware of them, you can be proactive in protecting against it. So the, the challenge of drifting off course is that you don't notice, right? And these things give us the, the opportunity to go, hey look, there's mission drift happening. Quick, someone pull those weeds out or change course or whatever. It gives us the chance to respond to it. Um, and so they, they are money, documents, storytelling, and leadership. And so we'll start with money. That's a pretty easy one. Um, everyone knows you know, the phrase, follow the money, and that sort of thing. In 2014, uh, World Vision USA made an announcement that, got, that they were going to change their employment policies. And for the first time in their history, they were going to be employing people from same-sex relationships. And they were very careful in, when they made this announcement, they were very careful to say, look, this doesn't mean that we are promoting same-sex marriages or that we're not supporting a traditional marriage, but this is just a thing that we think that we need to do, blah, 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 blah. And within two days, they had lost 5,000 child sponsorships and lost $2 million of funding per year. And the president of World Vision USA came out and said, we've listened, we believe we've made a mistake, and we're asking our supporters to forgive why do I raise that when I'm talking about money? It is a really great example of faith-motivated stakeholders 
holding an organisation to, to account. Now, whether they're holding it mission true or not in that example, you can debate that, but it demonstrates the power of values-based grassroots level stakeholders. It's the mum and dad supporters who will support an organisation because they believe in what this organisation does. They're not doing it for a return on investment, they're not doing it for publicity. They, if, you, if you're supporting uh, the parenting place in New Zealand, it's because you believe in a Christian organisation teaching values that will help parents to, to raise their children in a more effective way. And if you depart from doing that core business, then those grassroots level stakeholders, those funders will go, well, you're not doing that anymore, take your money away. So one of the challenges for non-profit charities, which is what most Christian ministries are, is that they're dependent on finding resources and then keeping those, that funding. And if you are reliant on a single source of income, then the tendency is to be pressured significantly by that funder. You can be um, pressured. No, you didn't? Okay, sweet. You can, if you have questions, that's sweet. And so if you're connected with grassroots level stakeholders, they're, they're more likely to keep you aligned. So one of the ways that a, an FBO can resist mission drift is by drawing on diverter. You can say no to some money maybe because you've got multiple people funding you. If somebody comes and says, look, we'd really like you to do X, Y, and Z or change this or you need to do you know, change your policies, my core mission, or my, you know, my why, it gives you the ability to say, no thanks, I'm good. We'll just not take your money. Hard call <laughs> without falling over. And there's a, uh, an educational psychologist called Ivan Illich who says every organisation has as its primary motivation self-preservation. Your number one motivation as an organisation is to continue to exist, which is actually counter to any social service enterprise. So any organisation that exists to serve a street or um, people helping homeless people or anyth anything at all, the goal of these organisations is to remove the need to help the homeless. Well, success for you looks like there being no more homeless people, right? But guess what? If you succeed, your organisation disappears because you're not needed anymore. But we want to do our job well, but not too well. If we do it too well, then we don't have a job anymore, and that'd be really scary. And, and obviously, the scope of the challenges that most um, social service organisations are trying to address is such that you're, you're never going to be successful. It's not going to happen. But there's also a heart thing that we need to address in ourselves, that th this isn't just a job, or, and we're not just trying to grow this organisation. And, and that's, been something, that's been something interesting for me coming into CCNZ actually, is thinking actually, what does success look like for us? And growing the brand of CCNZ isn't what we're here to do. That's not our job. Sometimes we might need to represent all the camps, so we might need to put the, the CCNZ badge on something and say on behalf of camps in New Zealand, such and such, like when we're, when we're dealing with the Ministry of Health around COVID for example. But um, Getting a, getting a bigger budget for CCNZ is not the objective. The objective is how do we serve camps? And if that requires a budget, fine. But it might not. It might just require some really hard work. And that's okay too. Um, and it also causes some tension with the church when these organisations are established as a ministry of the church. So a lot of camps in New Zealand have been established as a, as a ministry, the church saw, well, after World War II, there's a lot of dads not around anymore, clearly, and so there's all, the, all these young, young people growing up without dads, and the church is going, man, this isn't great, how can we do something to help these young people and connect them and provide some male role models and that sort of thing, do some outdoor stuff. So Christian camping was part of the response to that. 
over time, camps, just like any other organization, have to or, or tend to grow, stand on their own two feet financially. And that means that there's a disconnect from the church because originally the church is like, we should do this, this will be amazing. And everyone's like, yeah, that'll be great. Let's give some money towards it. Yeah, we'll do that. That'll be our camp and we're meeting this need. And then different funding comes from other places and now we're like, well, this is our camp, but it's only sort of our camp because we're not really like, how involved are we? We're not giving it any money anymore. We're not propping it up. And We'll pray for you. We'll pray for you. And you like, extend that over 60, 70, 80 years, the relationships stop and they become weaker and you have to be super intentional to remain connected. There's a, a Catholic organization um, in the Waikato and their motto is the caring arm of the church and they do really fantastic work. And the bishop, who's the boss, of sees the benefit of what they do as a ministry of the church. And so he says to, the, to, to this team, hey, you guys are amazing. You're doing such great work for the church. Um, wouldn't it be cool if we could have some parishioners, some of the church members come in and we could, could pray for clients and whatever. And they're like, yeah, that'd be good. They'd get in the way. And then he's saying to the, to the congregation, hey guys, look at these guys over here. They're doing such a great job on behalf of the church. We should really get in behind them and support them. And despite the fact that he's seeing this strategic connection, the logical extension of their faith in practice, the organization feels separate from the church and the church doesn't really feel like it's part of them anyway. And so there's this relationship disconnect, even though the guy in charge is like, this is amazing, not connecting. Um, Oh, no, I won't give you, oh. okay, oh, no, I'll give you one other one. So there's a, no, I'll tell you who it is as well. Family Works New Zealand, a really successful, large social service organisation that came out of the Presbyterian Support Network, so it's part of the Presbyterian Church of New Zealand, theoretically, um, organisationally it is, but I spoke to one of the board members and they said, they've, they've recently removed all references to faith from their name, from all of their policy documents, everything, it's gone. The church still promotes them internally and says, hey, this is our social service ministry, support them. You know, give them money, they're great, they do awesome stuff. They are great and they do do awesome stuff. But they don't consider themselves to be a faith-based organization anymore, despite the, the fact that the church sees them as, a faith, as their faith-based organization. And I spoke to a board member and, sh and she said to me, this organization is a business, it has hundreds of employees, it has self-preservation as a motive. No judgment, just a comment. That's that's what's been happening. Um, oh, okay, the, the other thing really quickly is um, a lot of organisational leaders think that if they, when they're talking to funders, people who might give them money, and they say, we're a Christian organisation, that the, that the funders are going to be turned off and go, well, we don't really want to be funding Christian organisations, we'll do something else. But what I found is not that, that actually... Christian organizations, as long as you're not shoving faith down people's throats, if you operate professionally, actually most funders really value, um, or they appreciate a values-based approach. They know why you're doing this. There's no like questions of motive and or where are they making their money? You know, how, how are they getting rich out of this? We're not. Why? Well, because here's why we're doing it. Oh, okay, we understand now. You know, so it, it actually answers a whole bunch of questions for them. The Open Home Foundation um, is a fostering organisation, a Christian fostering organisation. They get 95% of their funding through government contracts, through Oranga Tamariki. They have the Apostles' Creed written in full in their, in their organisational constitution. And they have a policy which says that no board member, staff member or foster parent may be in those roles unless they adhere to their statement of faith, including the Apostles' Creed. 
it's borderline illegal. It's not, they're very careful about it, but it's like, this is prescriptive. This is policy. This is why we do this thing. And yet 95% of their funding comes from Oranga Tamariki. Why? Because they're really professional. They're great at what they do. And it doesn't come with strings attached. We're not doing this just so that we can coerce people to become followers of Jesus. We're doing it because we know that God loves us. And part of that is us loving other people, especially the needy and the vulnerable. It's pretty cool. Um, all right, so that's the first one, that's money. Um, the next one is documents. I'm just going to talk to these quickly, okay? Because um, otherwise we're going to run out of time. Uh, and the storytelling one's the best one. Uh, documents is around having overtly stated documents. So not something implicit. We won't, we, if we're going to set up a new organization as this Christian ministry and we're all really excited about it and we say we're going to uphold traditional Christian values, what does that mean? Traditional Christian values, you can interpret that however you want. And in 20 years' time, traditional Christian values could look much, much, much different to what you might interpret it today. But if you say we're going to uphold the gospel of Jesus Christ and promote it with whatever, you know, something very specific, then there's no wriggle room. Now, it can be changed. If it's a constitution, you can change that. But in order to change it, it requires a, um, a board decision to change it, and therefore it's not mission drift, it's something else. It's like, actually, we've made a conscious choice to move away from faith. And that's, that's the call of the organization, but it's not going to happen accidentally. Um, yeah, I think that's probably all I'm going to say on that one, because it's not going to apply to you guys so much either. Uh, you've heard the, say, the statement that um, culture, or you, might, you guys might not have, culture eats policy for breakfast. So the idea that uh, if you have a whole bunch of people who think a certain way within your organization, and you've got policy that says something else, that actually the policy is going to be trumped by all these people who want to do it this way. That's the culture of the place. Uh, another one, another saying along the same lines is, um, you can write the laws of a country as long as I can write the, write the poems and the songs. What does that mean? Well, actually, if I can influence the people, that's gonna have way more impact than writing laws. Laws only work so far as they actually have engagement with people at a grassroots level. So although culture eats policy for breakfast, policy can also provide a framework through which to protect the culture. What does that mean? If you have like the Open Home Foundation example, that we only have Christians in these three key roles, or people who adhere to that, one, the way they do it is they have on their employment or, or their application documents, they say, uh, please provide three references and you can say who they are, how long you've known them, what their role is, but the last of those three references, two of the fields are already filled in, the, the field of um, uh, the role of this person. How do you know this person? And instead of saying friend or um, uh, ex-boss or whatever, the final one is um, church leader slash pastor, and it's already filled in and you can't edit that. So that's the person who's going to be providing your, your third reference. It's clever. It's a good way of doing things. But for them, that means that the possibility of them having 95% of their staff, or even a majority of their staff, even 50% of their staff, not adhering to their core mission and values is not going to happen because the policies that they have in place actually protect that culture. They filter, they provide a filter so that you're not going to get that many people. You might have some people who aren't Christians, and that's not a terrible thing, that's okay. But the critical mass, the culture of the place, is not going to go down that route. All right, um, oh, that's the statement that I was gonna get onto for the next one. Um, why is it there? Out of the wrong, one. okay, here we go. 
So storytelling is the third one, and storytelling is super exciting for me because this is something that's a little bit newer um, in terms of the, the knowledge around Mission Drift internationally. If you remember and celebrate the origin stories of your organisation, you're more likely to remain connected to them and know why you exist in the first place. So where you come from helps to inform who you are and where you're going. And this is really, really relevant for us as Christians. So think about, as a Christian, we live out of a story all the time. What's that story? The gospel, right? And so think about right, right, right back at the beginning, well, almost at the beginning, um, Moses has just died, Joshua is leading the people of Israel, they're going into Jericho and they cross the Jordan River. And this amazing thing happens, the Ark of the Covenant goes in, the water parts, they walk through on dry land, then the water comes back over again, and Joshua says, hey guys, go and grab some stones. Well, each of you tribes, grab a stone, we'll have 12 stones here, we're going to make a pile of stones. And clearly they're making an altar, right? And so the people go, oh, why are we going to do that? And he doesn't say, because we're going to make a sacrifice to God. Well, obviously that's what they're doing. They're making a sacrifice. But that's not what he says. What he says is, in years from now, when your children ask you what these stones mean to you, you will tell them what God has done here today. It's a touchstone, physically stones in this instance. This is a, a place of remembering. We remember what God has done here today, and as an extension of that, who we are as children of God. We are the people of God, and this is what God has done for us. And remember these stories. This is who you are. This is your identity. This is your purpose. See, purpose comes out of identity. Think about communion. What happens in communion? We ritualize and we enact the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus, and we participate in it. What's happening? We're remembering, sure, but we're creating corporate identity as well. This is who we are. One loaf, one body, is what, the, is what the Bible says about communion. There is one loaf, that, and that's why the symbolism is really nice when you physically have one loaf of bread that you rip, out, rip apart. Not many churches do that, but it's remembering who we are, creating that identity, and that gives us purpose as well. In Māori culture, when you go into a marae, you do your pepeha, your mihi, talk about whakapapa, where you come from, the land that you're connected to, the people that you're connected to, you're saying, hey, this is me and this is who I am, which reinforces my knowledge of my own identity, but it also creates links with other people. And you'll hear people go, like you, you, someone will be giving their mihi or, or whatever, and somebody else will go, ah, oh, kia ora, kia ora, over there, because they're like, oh yeah, sweet, I have a connection there too. Yeah, I'm, I know you somehow through some auntie or whatever, or I went there when I was a kid or, you know, whatever. It creates identity. It's really, really neat. We've got such a rich history of it within New Zealand. Protestant Christians are pretty terrible at it, at remembering where we come from and why. Catholics are really great at it. For the general, pro for the, for the, the general Protestant, it'll be like, we, there was all this Old Testament stuff, there's a, there's a problem with sin, God had a plan, Jesus was the answer to that plan, Jesus came, he died, rose again, there's some early church stuff happened, and then there was me. So hang on, hang on a minute, we've just missed 2,000 years. <laughs> what happened there? And, and the, like, these stories are important. These are, the, these, are the shoulders of the, these are the giants whose shoulders we stand on. Now it's all rooted in Jesus. I'm not saying forget about that. But like the story of the gospel in New Zealand is rich. There's so much stuff to be proud of and encouraged by, and there's stuff to be ashamed of. Um, and then the stories of land locally, like what is this? 
it's so rich when you get into it, and, I, and I, I'm really excited about kind of encouraging these sorts of stories in, in ministry camps with kids. You know, just what about the gospel and how it's come to here, and especially here with Torori just down the road, and all, I mean, it's so cool. There's really great things, but all of that stuff within an organizational context, if you know where you've come from, where, you ca- where you've come, it embeds you within that story. It gives you value and identity, and out of that identity comes you up. It gives you shoulders to stand on but it also pulls you down, it, it grounds you. Because what right do you have to lead this organization? This disrespectful can you be to all those people who have come before you? Um, this is a quote from Hirani Mead talking about Papa. He's a, a, a Maori writer, I'm sorry. As individuals, we have no identity except by reference to our ancestors. We are beings only because they prepared the way for us, a place in the whakapapa lines and membership in a whānau and in an iwi. We are beings only because they prepared the way for us and gave us a slot. You see the two things? This dictionary lifts you up, and on the other hand, it limits your autonomy and says you belong to something bigger than yourself. Don't stuff it up. You're a custodian. I love that. And then the very last one is leadership, and we can, that's, uh, yeah, I'll just brush on it. So a strong leader can lead an organization away from a core mission, even if all that other stuff lines up really well. But when they leave, because those other things are in place, it's likely to drag the organization back. And this is the role of those, those strongly worded policy documents as well. If you're replacing a leader or recruiting a new leader, you need to know what the mission of the organization is specifically, not in concept. Because otherwise, if we're looking for somebody who can, who can carry this organization forward to meet the mission, but you don't know what the mission is, what are you recruiting? It's a, it's a moving target. And so that can help to protect against this as well. Conversely, a really strong leader, even if everything else is messed up, if you've got financial pressure from one place and your policy stock documents suck and you don't know wh- why you were put in place in the first place, like why this organization exists, a strong leader can keep a, a, an organization true to the mission even if everything else points to, towards mission drift. So strong leaders are really, really important. And that's all I'm gonna say about that because it's five to three and I know we've got a bit of time before afternoon tea, but um, I would, like to give you a chance to ask questions or have a chat so know your why keep your why central and then do your why you guys are super young to be listening to stuff like this because this is like whoa this is like organizational leadership stuff but actually it applies to us personally as well why do i do this stuff why do you come to camp oh it's fun cool it's fun enough maybe it is maybe all you do is life is looking for fun anyway thoughts questions that's me. That was four years of my life. <laughs> I have some questions for you. If um, well, Where did they go? Oh, there they are. Go. You talked about stories and celebrating your origins kind of thing being a really important part of creating that culture um, within an organization. What happens if you don't have great <laughs> origin stories? You know, you've you're actually in the process of making those changes. Do you just try to celebrate the stuff that's happening now? I, I guess within a Christian ministry, I, I would, if I thought the origin of this organization was a bit of a, a bit weak, 
Like this isn't this isn't a great thing for us to be based on. Um, you can't just pretend that didn't happen, right? You have to acknowledge that. But the, if you're still involved with it, obviously you see benefit in the thing, right? You're not just going, oh, that's got a stink story and it exists for a stink reason. Let's be part of that. <laughs> it's like that's got a stink story, but there's so much potential and I love where it can go and I want to be part of it anyway, right? And so why? Why do you see the strengths in it? Why do you see the positives? And there'll be values-based stuff in that, probably that comes back to faith. And so I would be looking to ground it in that stuff, in the bigger why, not just the organizational why, and then maybe create some of the why stories for the organization. It started like this, but we did this then, like a, like a, um, a testimony, right? I was, God did, I am. So the organization was, God did, it's now. Yeah. What do you think some of the risks of, for mission drift in camp, within camping are, specifically, not just in concept? I think the money is probably being sustainable. Yeah. It's a big thing. Um, so we take on a lot of school camps yeah. to pay for the ministry. Yeah. There can be a tendency to focus on those because they're the most common camp. So what do you think about that, you, you guys who aren't in kind of the running camp roles? Um, the tension between needing to make money, so you run like school camps and the commercial stuff, and actually we're a Christian organisation and, our, and one of, like our primary purpose here is to introduce people to Jesus and help them grow closer to him. There's a tension there, right? How do, how do we navigate that or what are the options, do you think? Because there's a few different ways to tackle it. Any thoughts, ladies, at the back? Yeah. Specifically, with the to to do with like school camps and ministry camps and the role of the gospel and the presentation of the gospel within that, I guess. No, it's kind of like a bounce, I suppose, like what's the word? Promote the ministry ones, while still wants to get back. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah. So the, the way camps have tackled it to date, do you guys have something to add as well? No? Sorry, I wasn't. You can laugh. I'm totally certain that. I just thought you might have been had an idea. Um, <laughs> the the way camps have tended to tackle it is they go down the two extremes. Are ministry camps are why we exist. School camps just make us money, and that's sweet because it's making us money so that we can do the ministry camps. That's one way, and it's okay. It's just one way of looking at it. The other way of looking at it is we're a Christian camp. Everything we do has to be Christian, and therefore, if you're a school and you're coming on a camp with us, then there will be a gospel presentation or a, um, a chapel time or something every day for your, for your school while you're here. And that's just part of the condition of using our, using our camp. And there's a whole range of options in between around, you know, we have sign writing around the place, around Bible verses and encouragement, and then we have, um, maybe we encourage you to say grace before a meal, but that's as far as it goes. 
So I, I think there's a real opportunity here for us as, as camping in New Zealand. So this is something that I've been thinking about quite a lot. And I think if we can introduce some uh, better facilitation skills, so there's a thing called adventure therapy, which we can't expect to train everybody in because it's a pretty involved process. But if like staff and activities coordinators can learn and then implement an approach to activities, which isn't just doing an activity, but there's reflective practice that happens within it. So we're not just rock climbing a wall doing rock climbing. We're going to talk about overcoming obstacles in life and how we can support people around us who are struggling. And they have a little talk at the beginning, you do the activity, at the end you have a debrief and you just start use it as a conversation starter. You can't embed faith into that too overtly, but you can begin to introduce value stuff, life value stuff, which are embedded within gospel and it can lead to other conversations as well. So I think that's one way that we can begin to introduce some of that stuff in a really professional way, which probably provides a better service to our clients as well, um, without being cringy, cringy we Christians. Um, and another one is uh, through tikanga. There's origin story things. The, one of the um, Education Outdoors New Zealand objectives for outcomes for, for schools is to engage with uh, local iwi around the, like the land, stories of the land and understanding tikanga. If we can offer that, then actually it's another tip of something that we're providing for a school when they come here, so it's we're increasing the return on their investment, and faith is embedded within culture and language. And although the uh, missionaries brought faith to New Zealand, we have the opportunity, and so into to the Māori, faith is more embedded within Māori culture than it is within our contemporary Western culture, and it gives us the opportunity to, um, without being tokenistic, being genuine, but it gives us the opportunity to embed faith again back into this culture through this language and, this, and, and, and through Māori culture. So I, I think by the, those two things are really key ways that we can start to introduce questions of faith and faith discussions and values-based stuff um, without being super weird, crazy Christian people. Cool. Anything else? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Do it. Um, if you uh, if you were interested in transforming a an organization, um, would you say that the best place to start was with the um, with a strong leader, or yeah, injecting a strong leader, or um, kind of within the ministry slowly reshaping those policies and kind of a. So I've been privileged enough to be not involved but an observer, a close observer to an organisation going through this shift and um, well, I can share through the parenting place in New Zealand uh, and Greg Fleming coming on board and he dragged the organisation kicking and screaming um, back to a more faith based position and he actually used uh, a he called it their hiringer, so their journey and, and incorporated identity as a um, as a Christian organisation within a bicultural nation, and so the, the the cultural stuff actually really helped him. It gave him something to lean on a little bit. But his challenge, like he was leading, he was a strong leader. He had to battle against a very professional board who weren't necessarily on board. Different word uh, with the the core mission of the organisation as a Christian, as a foundational Christian organisation, and so he he had to do it. He, he, 
he was incredibly intentional and he worked very, very hard. And he had to change their hiring processes and address culture. So the culture, addressing culture internal to the organisation was a really major part of, what, of how he achieved it. And it, it was after the internal culture had shifted that he was able to kind of bring the, the board along on the journey. 